Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest, Eugen Bacon, is an African-Australian author of several novels and fiction collections. Uh, she's a British Fantasy Award winner, a Forward Book of the, of the Year Silver Award winner, twice World Fantasy Award finalist and finalist in the British Science Fiction Fiction Association, Aurelius, Ditmar, and Australian Shadow Awards. I could just go on for a long time on just awards, but uh, uh, just a few more um, announced in the honor list of the 2022 Otherwise Fellowship, Otherwise Fellowships for doing exciting work in gender and speculative fiction, uh, Danged Black Thing by Transatlantic Publishing, uh, made the Otherwise Award honor list as a sharp collection of Afro-surrealistic work. And um, Eugen's creative work has appeared worldwide, including award-winning Australian writing, fantasy magazines, fantasy and science fiction, year's best African speculative fiction. And of course, um, we are going to be talking about the new work, which is Serengeti today. So firstly, congratulations on an absolutely magnificent novel and welcome. Thank you so much, Maggie. And, and that was my formal bio. The informal bio is that I am a writer, an editor, a mother, a daughter, a sister, a mentor, a peer, a friend. And I'm speaking to you from Melbourne, Australia. I am African-Australian and the one is not exclusive from the other. I am okay with my dualities. I am a daughter of the Wajita people of Tanzania, and this is now my new home. And I am a daughter of this land that belongs to the Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for that informal bio. And I would also like to acknowledge that I'm coming to you from a Wabaka land uh, and pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, so thank you so much for that. And, and that informal bio is, is absolutely perfect because it engages with the, the many identities and many aspects of who we are as people and you know who you are and who your work and the way in which your work engages with those dualities. So uh, I'd love to talk more about that and, and about your uh, really fascinating protagonist, uh, Chanzu, <laughs> who also has you know multitudes, if you like. But before we do that, can I ask you to just begin by reading a little bit from Serengeti just to um, give people I've got a background there we go Serengeti to give people just a little sense of the book I would be delighted and I had to think about what would I like to read and I'm going to read from somewhere in the middle of the book and it's from chapter 22 and I'll just talk a little bit about this incident so Chanzu is meeting Aunt Mai and they want to try out a new restaurant called Digger's Cake that promises African cuisine. And Chanzu is also planning to tell Auntie about Scarlet, how it isn't working. But Chanzu has time and goes swimming to this aqua center in Fitzroy called Intercool. And the water is quite a clear toppers and Chanzu wants to jump in. But the pool is not empty. There is a couple there, an old white couple, and there's a man who's doing his stretch exercises. And there's a woman in the water who's really scooping the water in such a way she's floating on her back. And Chanzu thinks of that kind of swimming and, and decides to call the woman basket. And so Chanzu wants to swim in the long side of the pool. And so this is the part that I'm going to start. And it is in second person. You leaned over, asked in full politeness, if you could perhaps take the long end. Basket glared at you, 
and to your astonishment said, Shut up! You try to explain. I'm swimming laps as patiently as you could. Perhaps she might take the shorter lane? She hissed at you and again said, Shut up! So you thought, fuck it, and dove into the long end anyway, really close each time you swam past her, kicked your legs harder to make a splash. Now you were swimming out of your skin, kicking, kicking, showing off as if you were in a race, the favorite to win it. You were doing some nifty tumble turns, if you dared say so yourself. Your strokes were ace. You were conserving energy and did another beautiful tumble turn and you were a dolphin, flap, flap, swim in your tapered body. You sliced the water with soft hands and it flowed smoothly over your body, binding between your fingers each perfect stroke. You felt pumped, as in pumped. You were ready to do a one-arm press on the floor tiles. You even did a butterfly, good bounce on it, a real whale in the water, no worries, boasting how decent you swam, not pushing baskets. The old man was now doing standing calf stretches, his upper body forward, both hands on the wall. He bent slightly, stepped out of it, switched legs. You flicked floated your legs, then swept out a backstroke, fingers catching the water, your head still. As you passed basket, something stung your skin. Had you imagined it? You passed her again, and she pinched you. Real nails and fingertips. You hadn't imagined it. Sure, you'd been the aggressor, and that's because she'd been, she'd been unreasonable, but pinching was for kids. Something snapped, and you stood in the water, your feet touching the meter floor. You heard yourself say, you colonialist, slave trader. It ought to have been a bit funny, maybe not, that you chose to combine two historically averse yet equally suffocating words. It was you, she gasped. You belong in a jail of colonialists and slave traders, you said. Then you saw the old man by the water's edge. Clearly they were together, the way he was eyeballing you. I am younger and stronger than you, he said, loud for his benefit. Touch me one more time and I will hurt you. She scoffed at your fact. Your mood was irrational, call it OTT. Had the pinches broken off skin? No. You felt something row inside, but it was not ire. It was a culmination of topsy-turvies and you were tired of being picked on. The old man by the pool. You thought he'd been dropped into the water, reach your collarbone in two strides. But his body was unwilling. He stuttered out of his trackies, dipped into the topper's water to do what? Give moral support? He looked at you severely, but his body was at odds with himself. He swam in your direction towards where you were arguing with a woman. I saw you start, he shouted. Is she your wife? You demanded. You are the one 
Teach her manners, you snapped. She has no right to pinch me. But you, the days of oppressing black people are over. Tell her that. The her in question was, wasn't lingering to see if her man was inclined to tell anything or teach manners for her benefit. She progressed her basket as you and her friend, lover or hubby, yelled at each other. Then he too bushed after the heated exchange, turned away as if happy to forget it and was content to gasp and wheeze back and forth along the lane. You swung the rest of your laps, but they were no longer on a good float, no longer easy in the water. The old man still swam, crocking and whizzing each stroke. You pulled out of the water, entered the spa. You sat facing the pool, scowling at him when he groaned and gulped in your direction. Maybe it was your laps the blood still running, or your moral outrage over a grown woman pinch. Whatever it was, you do have a knack of bounding into storms. You refuse to let it go with basket. Every now and then you remembered, this was not kindergarten who pinched people. You helped her recollect, even as she continued to ignore you and your aims to wound words. Slave trader, colonialist. She stayed oblivious. He looked worse for wear, it splashed with his hands. As warm bubbles licked you, you wondered if he might cock it any moment. Then you thought, bloody hell, you're a first aider. If she cucks it, you'll have to dive in the water and resuscitate the bloody bitch. Thankfully, as your spa foamed and guggled, neither of them croaked. On your way from the poolside, you glared at the two with the best hellfire you could churn inside your eyeballs, but your words came out calm. Get yourself a pet monkey. Basket, laughed or gut, moved her mouth up and down in silent words you couldn't decipher. Then her eyes widened, a heart attack coming, and you legged it out of there. Thank you so much. <laughs> so much is going on in that um, excerpt that you've read, and uh, I, I love that you've chosen it. I mean, First thing, um, I have about 10 questions. <laughs> the first thing is the, the incredible link that you make in that passage between the opening scene, um, you know, which is full of, you know, at multi-core, when Jiangsu is, is actually um, effectively told that, uh, that um, Z won't be uh, renewed or won't be made permanent um, and all sorts of, you know, kind of, you know, misogyny and racism and uh, condescension, a huge amount of condescension comes out and, you know, this kind of inner burning rage um, comes out. That seems to me to connect quite beautifully with this second pivotal scene as if they're both interlinked and the rage that uh, that Chanzu is is experiencing is linked back to that first incident as well, and then you get that sense, you know, that these are both pinches of of a series of pinches, the many pinches yes. um, that Chanzu yes. would have experienced. 
And and this is almost like the culmination of pinches. Mm. And Chanzu is gender fluid and uses the pronouns see here. Mm. But for the purpose of this conversation, I'll use they, them. Mm. So Chanzu feels that all their life they have been picked on. And this scene just really, really, uh, it's the last straw. You could say the last straw on the camel's back. And, and, And so there's that explosion. And it's a little bit amplified, but it, it's an explosion of Chanzu's inner rage finally coming out. Yes, and there's such an embodiment. Uh, that's what I feel about the Chanzu character is that, you know, there is so much. I mean, it's partly your unique narrative um, voice that you produce, which is a kind of, um, it's it's second person, but it's also first person, um, which is really interesting. It's you addressing the self. Um, so to, to firstly, maybe tell me a little bit about that. Did that voice come to you almost, uh, you know, hand in hand with the narrative plot? Because it seems so innate. I have written second person, first person short stories. Mm. And I felt that I really connected with the stories that I wrote in that way and in a way it, it it removes you a little bit from the narrative but you also still connect quite intimately with the protagonist and I'd never tried it for a novel before so it just almost came naturally like sometimes I, I experiment with voices a little bit and maybe try the third person and then maybe go to the first person and see how it works but this is one story that came to me instantly in that second person first person that is addressing Chanzu and it just felt so intimate and I could really connect with his character. Mm, yes one you know I've used it in poetry um, and I've seen <laughs> it used in poetry and I don't think it's that uncommon in poetry but I've never seen it before used in this way uh, in a kind of a novel and prose with an entire um, you know character arc and progression and it seems to work really beautifully because there is a lot of poetry in in Chanzu's you know, inter- if you like, interior monologue. And that's why it feels both intimate and yet, you know, uh, also almost like a third person narrative, kind of simultaneously. I remember when I sent the manuscript to the publisher, in fact, I'll tell you a little story. Mm. So Barry of Transit Lounge Publishing said to me, I'd like something from you. And this is after he'd published Damn Black Thing, my collection of short stories, and they're speculative. And he said, but I don't want it to be speculative and I don't want it to be short stories. That's and I right. remember going like, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, I know. I write short stories and I write speculative fiction. And I think I fumed a little bit for a while thinking you want to change me but this story started talking to me and in that second person voice really strongly and Chanzu was very strong in my head Mm. so I wrote the first 10,000 words and I sent them to Barry and within two or three days he replied with a contract and I was like again bloody hell Barry that's all I've got like I didn't (laughs) have the rest of the story I didn't even know whether I'd be able to write it but Chanzu was really strong in my head and eventually uh, they started telling the story and it just unfolded and when I finished the manuscript my heart was in my mouth because you know you have this imposter syndrome and you're thinking I'll send it to the publisher and he's going to hate it and so I sent it to Barry and within a week he responded with just four words he said the novel is great and that was it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I know. So to this day, I really love this story. And it's just one that really talks very personally to me. 
Yes. And I think there's a bit of Chanzu that also reflects me, my own hybridity, my own sense of unbelonging sometimes, mm. like always looking to find a place in the world where you fit in. And, and Chanzu, the struggle goes on, particularly with all the relationships around them. And this the twin brother who's quite um, uh, alienated from them. So there's quite a, a disconnect in their world. And even when they go to Serengeti, this made up town in Wagga Wagga, rather than fitting with this African community, they continue to be alienated. They don't belong. So that sense of disconnect continues. Mm. I think in some ways it feels to me like um, that's part of Chanzu's authenticity, you know, of not wanting to uh, allow themselves to be put into a particular, you know, category or binary, um, that those are restrictions that, you know, maybe don't feel, they don't feel natural, they don't feel right. Um, so I feel that in in many ways, they're struggling to, to allow for that multiplicity, um, and still take on these roles that one needs to take on to feed, uh, you know, the self and 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 to also deal with all these, um, these forces. Um, you know, I, I like, again, going back to that passage you read, this while Chanzu's in this incredible swimming flow. And I've always struggled with tumble turns. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, oh, tumble turns. <laughs> but, you know, Chanzu's in this incredible flow in this moment. And and that seems to me to be, you know, beautiful metaphor for the flow of Chanzu's work, the coding and the creation and the kind of general creativity um, that Chanzu has and the pinches that keep saying, you know, not here you're in the wrong lane, you know, get out of the lane. <laughs> that's, that's right. And and there's quite a paradox about Chanzu's story, because on the one hand, there's that sense of disconnect, the sense of rejection, the sense of not fitting anywhere, the social injustice. But on the other hand, Chanzu has a really strong sense of self. Mm -hmm. They know who they are. They know what they will accept and what they will not accept. And there's that strong sense of self throughout. One never feels that Chanzu is feeling lost, like even when uh, they can understand the rejection and the disconnect, but they still feel very strongly in touch with themselves and what they want out of life. And certainly Chanzu is no pushover. So, you know, not at, um, <laughs> not at all. And and there is this kind of innate rage. It's almost dangerous. And and that whole basket episode, I, I won't give anything away, but it kind of haunts Chanzu, um, you know, through almost through the rest of the, the book, this notion of, you know, what is my power here? Um, because Chanzu is so physically embodied, as, as you can tell from that swimming scene, you know, such a strong sense of this kind of physical innate power in the self and what the self is capable of. That's so right. They, and they also, yeah. talk, talk. there's also that sense of superstition uh, where Chanzu begins to wonder whether because of all the things they have done, perhaps they are cursed. And so there's that theme of superstition that rides along and it works also uh, in touch with the African tradition of belief and cultural tradition. And, and you know, superstition is always quite rife. And Aunt Maya doesn't help too much because <laughs> she keeps reminding Chanzu everything about, you know, tradition and culture. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And and I think, you know, that that's part of, I guess, the atmosphere you create with Serengeti as well. There is a there is a, you know, I call it magical realism. Maybe that's the wrong word. I almost think a little bit like, uh, you know, like of Ben Okri, you know, this this kind of notion that there are 
there are different worlds operating simultaneously. And there's almost this kind of hidden shadow spirit world that is totally invisible and doesn't conflict with the realism of the story in any way. And yet it's there. You feel that it's palpable. That's right. And magical realism is not incorrect. And maybe even more accurately, you could talk about African spirituality. Mm. Yes. So there's that aspect of it, the African spirituality. And while Chanzu is not deeply religious, but they do have certain beliefs that carry on. Also, um, when they meet other people in Serengeti, like Tao and Lao, the twins, and, you know, that, that spirituality is there inherent in their own way. Mm. And that is also maybe... Uh you know, a part of the self as well that Chanzu has to rediscover and find uh, through Serengeti, which is, you know, incredibly seductive in its way and repellent to Chanzu at the same time. So you have this sense of, of, of Chanzu's discomfort with being in this, you know, I guess made up village that's not where it says, it, you know, that is a kind of a pretend African village um, at the same that's time right. as feeling drawn to it and what it represents in terms of the self. That's right. And initially, I wanted to set the novel in Tassie. So it would have been in Tasmania, because mm -hmm. what I was looking for was a quiet countryside that's beautiful and lush, but it can have its own mysteries and its own secrets. And then I went to visit Wagga Wagga, and something about it just really struck me. I, I love the sense of place within Wagga Wagga. And I thought, you know, this is it. I have found my setting for Chanzu's story. <laughs> yeah, brilliant, brilliant. And, and you know, I think you play a lot with the name as well in, in the book. Yes, because I worked somewhere, I do have a day job, and I worked somewhere where my manager was from New South Wales, and we were talking about Wagga Wagga, and I used to call it Wagga Wagga, and he said, no, it's Wagga Wagga, and you have to say it twice. It's only the knockers who can say Wagga once, so if you're a visitor, you have to say Wagga Wagga. <laughs> <laughs> that really stayed with me. <laughs> well, there is a whole linguistic element to the book, and and you know, and that feeds into it. This idea of kind of Aussie lingo, um, and what the Aussie kind of rules of you know engagement with nicknames and you know and areas and place. And then there is this made-up language that you create, which is so you know it, it's kind of familiar because it, it's building on Swahili and other existing languages. But it's also kind of in its own way has its own almost, you know, poetic meaning, a, a sort of sonic meaning, if you like, when it's spoken. Yes, and, and that was part of my hybridity coming out mm. because for a while uh, in the past, I really struggled with myself trying to identify who am I. I was trying to be African, I was trying to be Australian, and nobody said to me, why can't you be both? And in this story, just having both the African and the Australian, it's a marriage of the two cultures. And a lot of the Aussie dialect comes out naturally. I didn't even have to look it up because it's now part of who I am. And then the Swahili and the Bantu, the made up words, like even Aunt Mai, the name Mai means mother in Bantu. Mm -hmm. So Mai or Maui. And that also speaks to the intimacy that Chanzu has with Aunt Mai because it's almost like and mother mm. and you know things like uh, mbege which is the banana wine that really is a traditional name of it and so I infuse all of this and I, I add this to the glossary but also within the text like part of the balance of infusing myself in the story but also making sure that it continues to be accessible to the reader is that I put it in such a way that the 
reader understands what it is, like in some way, either with the phrasing or with the response, you still bring the reader on the journey. So you introduce something foreign, but then it's not too foreign because they can find the connection and understand what it is that you're talking about. Yes, and, and because we're in the kind of mind and the body in this poetic way, really, in this kind of almost a broken, um, the kind of interior monologue that one has, this semi-stream of consciousness. We're with Jiangsu and we are discovering these words that are both familiar and not familiar at the same time as well. So it's, there's nothing that, that's hard uh, about reading it. If anything, you have to slow yourself down and go, you know, because there's, there's all sorts of great plot elements. There's a you know, murder mystery and, you know, there's, um, there's, a, there's a range of things going on uh, that drive the narrative forward. But, you know, a lot of the action is taking place in the interior of Chanzu, which is much slower. So it's an interesting tension between <laughs> speed to end and slow down and, and experience the moment. It's you know how people say that when you have children you don't really have a favorite, but Serengeti is one of those novels that I really connect with. Mm. Like if somebody asked me what do you want me to read now, I'd say you know have a look at Serengeti, and not because it was released recently. It's just a story that also speaks to me very intimately, very personally. Mm. Yeah. Yes, it certainly covers a lot of ground. Um, so I want to talk about another voice, this disembodied voice. Um, it's, you know, the disembodied voice of violence, really, uh, almost as if it were um, all of those things that perhaps uh, Chanzu has tamped down in order to live in the world, and that's Tex. Um, you did mention earlier Tex, Tex, uh, Chanzu's twin brother, who never appears in the book, really, but who has, is, is the only other really narrative voice. I mean, we do hear dialogue with Aunt May, my, my. Did you pass my yeah who's a wonderful character I, I love her. I love her. <laughs> I love don't, doesn't everybody need an aunt Mai in their life like Absolutely. she's just <laughs> she's the wall you can lean on and she's everything <laughs> she is she's wonderful but then there's text text is you know is 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 dangerous is, is really quite scary uh every act of love is is a terrifying one uh on his part and yet there is still something um something beautiful about him and you know I don't know what it is because I'm repelled by him but at the same time <laughs> drawn so talk to me a little bit about that that voice why you chose to give text uh his own small but um you know still powerful uh voice yes I wanted to introduce the shadow and light within the story mm -hmm. and particularly when you think of the connectivity of twins twins tend to be really connected mm. and so part of the narrative is also Chanzu one trying to redeem text to save him from himself but also there's that uh, challenge within Chanzu whether by trying to save text from himself maybe they're also um, exacerbating some of the bad behaviors and Chanzu also wonders whether because text is a twin what if Chanzu also has those dark elements and so and we see in, within Texas narration, we see instances where we see a darker side of Chanzu, and, and this is quite intentional just to have that darkness and light, like at the end of the day, um, even as human beings, we, uh, we like good and evil is very subjective and very relative, what is good, what is evil, and we work 
with our instincts and you know sometimes what society has laid out for us but at the end of the day what is good and what is evil and those are things that we grapple with it's part of the existentialism that I wanted to capture. Mm. And also I guess this trauma that both of them carry that is one trauma right it's one moment of rupture that they both experienced in the past Um, one moment of rupture perhaps that connects to maybe a whole history of generation to gen- generational traumas that seems to come through like a line and connects again with that, you know, that misogyny and, uh, and uh, racism that's experienced at different pinch points through the book. That's right. They're both deeply wounded. And at the end of the day, it's about, um, the question is about whether when you're so deeply wounded, they each choose different paths. Yes. They've gone through severe trauma, but Chanzu chooses one way and Tex chooses another way. Like they're very dissimilar and yet similar in a certain way. And mm. it comes to the question of choice. Things happen to us, but at the end of the day, we have a choice. Mm, wonderful. And then, of course, the, the traumatic um, lives of the refugees as well who are in Serengeti. Um, so just briefly, um, we're, we're running out of time, but just briefly, I want to talk a little bit about the app, <laughs> which I'm quite drawn to. I know you've got an IT degree um, and there is a, a, a lovely, I guess, a kind of um, almost matrix like, you know, reflexiveness with this app and how it links to the village and the book, the novel itself. It's a, you know, it's a little bit meta in, in that way. Yes, I wanted to leverage on my knowledge of IT and also just to add some measure of technology within the story, but it's also part of the story within a story mm-hmm. where I wanted to create a sense of create your own adventure and in such a way that it's not too specific, but it's enough to allow the reader to imagine what sort of app it might be. And so what we understand is that Chanzu is quite highly skilled, a software expert, and you know they're creating this app that eventually it means integrating within the community and characters are able to create their own adventure which is part of shaping your destiny in a way so it's what we spoke about about choice but through the app they can shape their own destiny yes yes wonderful and i i love the idea that we're reading this creation which is in effect its own kind of uh, open-ended app um, and that is the novel itself. So, you know, we're, right. we're thinking back to this notion of how do I work my way through this open-ended novel as a reader? And, you know, what are we jointly creating as I go through this? It seems to allow that space. That's right. And, and as writers, we steal from the everyday all the time. And so I leverage from my knowledge and my research extensively. And it really helps that I have the background in IT, which means I have that curiosity and I can do the fact finding and the research. And then I can apply creative license based on what I've researched and, and based on on what I know. Yeah, so I start with what is known and then I distort it a little bit. And I love that. I love the playfulness of writing, how you can really apply creativity and, and play with genre and play with form and play with text. And as you mentioned, there's prose poetry in my text. I hide little short stories in my text. I hide little prose poems in my text. Yeah, you do. Of writing. <laughs> I know. I, some of the some of the writing, uh, if you delineated it like poetry, it would be, it would be very much poetry. It's 
really quite, it's exquisite. So I just, uh, I'll just point that out to anybody who's listening. You really got to get hold of it. And I will include links in the show notes um, to do that. Um, so just one more question then, um, which is, and I know everybody asks you this, but I have to ask it to you as well. Uh, you have so many books on the go and coming out. So just talk to me briefly uh, about what's in the pipeline, because I know you've got a few things um, happening. That's right. I, I tend to be very, very focused. And that's how I finish my projects. Like basically when I start a project, I'm so focused on it. It's almost obsessive. It keeps me awake and I finish my projects and some of them just mature at the same time. So this year I published a novella, two novels and three edited anthologies. And I, I was really fortunate this year because I, I have a literary agent, a US literary agent. And so they have three projects from me at the moment. There's one that is in the contract phase and I hope I'll be able to talk more about it. And the other is, um, yeah, there's a collection of short stories that uh, it's gone out to publishers. And also I'm working on a new novel, which is based on the Saudi verse. I don't know whether you've heard about mm. it. This is uh, yeah, the world of uh, an African collective came together and we've created this Afrocentric world of five planets. And I am writing a story, a novel based on the different planets. And it's about uh, the Saudi verse is about sound and echo magic and sound magic. So imagine in a world of sound, what does silence mean? And so the novel is exploring the different kinds of silences and how the silences come about and what silence means. And it's the darker side of silence. So it's a crime novel. Yeah, there is a serial killer and all that. And they're using the silence and the darkness. Yeah, so I'm still working through it. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, I absolutely can't wait. So, uh, you know, congratulations on all of that. And, uh, and, and of course, on Serengeti, which is amazing. So, um, that is all we have time for today. But thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I will, as I said, link everything in the show notes. Um, I'll put a link to your book. And if there's anything else you want me to link, just send it through and I'll, I'll add it in there as well. Um, but thank you. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. <laughs> Bye for now. I'm excited. Bye.